Welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, your host and CEO of Bregman Partners. This podcast is part of my mission to help you get massive traction on the things that matter most. Tim Sanders is with us today. Tim and I met uh, probably about a year ago at a dinner with a good friend of ours, Tavo, and and he was, you know, everything he's going to talk about today related to his book, he represents as a person. Uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed meeting him personally. You know, we, we started off and ended off with a big hug and, and everything flowed from there. And uh, we're lucky to have him with us today. Love is the Killer App was the book that put him on the map in a big way. How to Win Business and Influence Friends. He was the Chief Solutions Officer at Yahoo. He's a writer, a speaker, a generally smart and nice guy. Tim, welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Great to be with you, Peter. So uh, I'm going to jump right into the book. I thought it was a really excellent book and really fun. And you talk about a love cat. So just describe the love cat. So in the book, um, I created this persona. I call it a love cat. It's based on the Cure's old song, if you remember, Love Cats. We move like cagey tigers. No two can get closer than this. I first heard that phrase used to describe a person back in 1997. It was used to describe Southwest Airlines' Herb Kelleher. Someone said he's a tough old love cat. And what that means is that this is a person who finds their professional success caring for other people and showing this care by sharing their intangibles, their knowledge, their network, and their compassion to make the other person successful. When that's what you do, where where you find your pleasure and your meaning, you, my friend, are a love cat. So there is a sentence that you wrote in this book that is hidden uh, on page 142, I believe, that I think was the most important sentence in the book. And, and uh, I'm sure you, don't, you haven't memorized your entire book. But here is the sentence. Love cats are in the business of getting others to trust us, to let us become a positive force in their life. That's and right. I think That's right. there's so much. Pro- let's talk about it a little bit because I think it's profound actually. You know, when we think about trust, Peter, so oftentimes we want people to trust us in order to buy from us, in order to follow us, in order to do what we want, to get what we need. But I flip trust. I flip the script. My sales job in life is convincing people to to believe that I really want to help them and expect nothing in return. I want people to trust me intellectually so when I give them knowledge, they will be open to that knowledge and willing to act on it and read more. I want them to trust that my network of relationships is not only valuable to them, but available to them. But I think most importantly, When I tell somebody, dude, I really care about you, when I give them a hug, I want them to trust that we've just had a real interaction and not think I'm trying to ingratiate them. That's how I think about trust. It's great. I love it. Now, you know, on on the one hand, you do want this, you do want your trust to lead to something that is mutually beneficial also for you. Am I, am I thinking about this correctly? Because I think this is where we get a little, this is where people can get a little stuck, I think, or yeah, a little yeah. confused or where it might feel a little slippery. And I want to make sure that we're really super clear about it. 
Yeah, well, and, and this is where I'm kind of crazy, but remember, nice, smart people succeed. If you help the right hero for the right reason, the right time, they don't have to do anything for you for that to be incredibly rewarding. I always assume, as a guy who's been doing this for 20 years, I assume that he is paying it forward, not paying me back. And it releases me from my ego's economics about how much did I get out of this transaction. Now, here's why that's important to the long-term career here. Because I don't ask for anything in return, I create surprise and delight in a world of takers and traders. So it has helped me over the last 20 years build a brand as a guy that actually helps without expecting anything in return. And that brand has led to awareness, surprising opportunities that fell into my lap by third parties that heard about it from them. And I got to tell you, Peter, I didn't write this in the book, but I picked the story up on the road. I'm not alone. In New York City, there's a guy in the life insurance business. His name is Elmer Letterman, just one T in Letterman. And his company still exists to this day. He starts his company in the 1930s during the Great Depression, trying to sell life insurance. You can imagine it was a tough sale, right? So he starts this thing around 1932 called the Letterman Lunch. And every week he'd find three people that should meet and he'd put a lunch together to get them started on an opportunity. So maybe he'd find a chef who's out of a job and has a vision for a new place in the meatpacking district. He's already got chefs lined up in the menu designed. He'd invite a construction guy. He'd invite an investor. That would be a classic Letterman lunch. Now here's the catch. He would never bring brochures or business cards to one of these lunches. If you were the chef, out of gratefulness, you could say, I want to buy life insurance from you. I appreciate what you've done. Letterman would look at you like you slapped him in the face and he'd say, focus, Peter, on the opportunity. He could come to the opening of your restaurant a year later with a line around the block and famously, he wouldn't accept a free meal or even a cut in line. When he shook your hand at the front door, he would ask you, how did you pull it off? And this is the punchline. He had so much humility about what networking really did for a person. It was one step. He had so much detachment from what he got out of it. 10 years later, he's a decamillionaire life insurance guru because he was swimming in endless referrals because in a contained market, doing this 50 times a year for a decade, he compounded the power of his brand and no one would do business with anyone but Elmer. But what he and I have in common is that we trust the system. What is that system? We trust the system where money goes where it's wanted and stays where it's well kept. And I consider my, my, my breaking free of reciprocity as something that makes me very different than the average guy that wants to quote network with you. But what he's really doing is screening you to see what you can do for him and holding out that little carrot, whatever that is, piece of advice, somebody you can meet. I think we're jaded about those kind of people in the world we live in. And, and it, it feels like there's a one of the elements to that is long term versus short term thinking, right? A sense of I'm actually going to think in terms of decades, not days. And if I think of decades in terms of days, then I can I can allow these relationships to blossom and funnel, et cetera. Yep. It, it also seems like it's something else, though. It seems like it's a genuine it's not an enlightened self-interest. It's actually a oh, genuine no. life of service. So one of the books that really changed my paradigm, it was like, I had this moment, Peter, in 1996, 1997, where the whole thing came to me. I was like, I'm going to be the only guy anybody knows 
that will help them without expectation. And I'm going to stockpile knowledge. I'm going to build this massive network. I'm going to give it away. Here's where I got the idea. I was reading a, the Being book by um, Abraham Maslow and you know the towards the psychology of being and he talked about the difference between be love and d love so be love is a being form of love where you feel like you've got everything in the world you need and you're completely fascinated and immersed in the other and all you want is for the other to do better and be happy that's be love and you've usually really actualized a lot to get to that stage because everybody else lives in d love that's deficiency love i want to love you so you love me because not enough people love me I love you in part based on what you can do for me. It's a quid pro quo. D-love produces nothing but anxiety for people on both sides of that relationship at some point. At some point, they disappoint you. You disappoint them. And it's a negative way of living. When I read about B-love, I'm like, this is who I'm going to become. And when I made that move in my career, this is right when I went to work for Mark Cuban in 1997. Dude, the timing couldn't have been better because this is something I've learned through many times of change. When things are really rocky, people are looking for answers. By the way, that's out of Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, one of my favorite movies. You know, looking for answers when times are tough. If you can be that person who's willing to mentor someone. I just came from a lunch where I mentor someone who's really at rock bottom and I really want to help him. If you can do that, it changes the way you think. And it also gives you incredible power and confidence when you're doing the rest of your life. And I made a little decision around 2000. I've been doing this and a lot of bosses were like, Tim, you're too nice. People are going to take advantage of you. You're, you're open target. And I realized I needed to tweak my system based on two little pieces of advice I got from Stanley Marcus Jr., who gave me a lot of help at the time. Number one, only help heroes. So if I do screen people when I meet them, it's not to ask what can he do for me? It's to ask, does he have a heroic quality about him? In other words, are you a giver or a taker? If you have ambition, if you have courage, if you have purpose, I'm going to help you. If you're a taker, I'm going to shun you. And that's what makes the world go round. And, and when, so that's how you define heroic. Heroic is someone who's out there, not just trying to take, but who's a giver. They got courage. They're in motion. They're going a little bit too fast. You can read the passions on their faces. They want to do something positive, and they're not trying to find a shortcut through me. I'm going to give my all to that person with that expectation because to get statistical here, eight to nine times out of ten, they do pay it forward because I don't measure reciprocity. But the second rule, Peter, that I kind of came up with that kind of protects me and allows me to be very vulnerable in these relationships, I only invest the time I'm willing to lose. It's like, you know, it's like an investor who's really smart about their money. How much time do I spend a week mentoring and networking? About six hours. And I steal those six hours from other time-wasting activities like meetings I shouldn't have, about side spin-off businesses, Facebook I shouldn't be surfing, shows I shouldn't be watching, things I shouldn't be enjoying like sports maybe. I steal time from the rest of my life to give it away. But my core 48-hour-a-week work on my career is sacrosanct, and that's the way I built kind of a, a, a separation, if you will, between my love life, if you will, uh, and my professional life. So let's go. There, I have a bunch more questions, but I think it would be useful to go and spend you know, just a minute or two on each of knowledge, network, and compassion because that's the formula that you that's have. Right. And, and it's, it's, you know, I'll ask you a couple of questions around each, but, but it would be good to – to, for you to sort of share some of that. Absolutely. So here's the premise. The way that you show love in a professional context is you intelligently share your knowledge, 
your network and your compassion to help another person succeed. Because Peter, these are the intangibles that every human possesses, that if you share them intelligently, you actually have more, not less. It's very different than time or money. That's why I focus on these three, right? No one's ever guilty receiving the knowledge, network, and passion. They get guilty when they take your time and money. So knowledge, what I mean by this is, what insights or information can I give the other to solve one of the other's information problems? What can I do to mentor the other to help that hero make the next step of his or her journey? But knowledge is a tricky one, right? Because in my mind, knowledge sharing is the foundation of a relationship at work. When you admire someone, believe in someone, trust them on a professional level to follow their advice, they've shared knowledge with you that's relevant, that's accurate, that's uniquely valuable. I think of it like this. You give good return on attention in every meeting. That's called ROA. And to do that, though, the, 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 the challenge you have is you must be a voracious aggregator of knowledge and insights and not the stuff that everybody else is reading and knowing. So the first step I had to take to become that love cat is I had to replicate. I was working for Cuban at the time. I had to replicate his bookish behavior. That guy read 50 books in 1997 before the end of the summer because he knew that the future was in the books and that long form reading was more committed than short form reading. He used to always quote Bobby Knight, the basketball coach, because he was an Indiana guy. And, and it would always be like this, everybody wants to win, but only a few people are willing to do the hard work to prepare to win. So I took that to heart. So I would spend all of my off time, I mean like get up early, when I flew, on the weekends as I drove into work, absorbing long form content. And when I started to do that, I found I had a lot left over I could share. And then a few years into this journey, I discovered this thing called prescriptive reading. I didn't make this up, this is a Michael Dell practice, but I heard about it and I was like, what a brilliant idea. He would like read at least one book a month that solved one of their customer's biggest problems. You like to read outside of his industry. Maybe he'd read something to do with healthcare or he'd read something to do with government management or whatever. So he'd read a book on behalf of the other person. I took it a step further. I would read a book to solve a customer's challenge or help understand their future. And I would study it like a student. I'd mark it up and take notes and if it was a really good book, that's the swag I would give that client the next time I saw them. And we'd have a discussion about those contents. And that's the way I made knowledge sharing a programmatic part of my life. I do that to this day, except now prescriptive reading is half of every book I read. I read about three books a month. That's great. Network. So your network is your greatest net worth. You may not be able to solve somebody's problems you meet, but I'm telling you, a friend of yours can. So think of it as a really valuable asset. I know you read the book. This phrase I use is I like, I like to say, you know, you can share knowledge and you'll never get dumber, right? It doesn't go away. But if you share your network with the wrong person at the wrong time, you might lose one of your own nodes because they're like, man, I hated that guy, right? So I believe that the difference between sharing knowledge and network is, is like the difference between ham and eggs. The chicken's involved but the pig is fully committed. So you must be intelligent about how you share your network, right? So the first thing you gotta do is really organize your network. So I spend a lot of time inputting things into my network, taking LinkedIn and moving it into my Outlook network. I wanna make my network as portable and as addressable as possible. It's almost like the book thing, 
got to read a lot of books to share knowledge. You got to organize your network to share your network. But I find that the key here also is I have to change conversations to create opportunities because I don't want to be thought of as a networker. That's that's a bad word now because we think networking is like a shortcut, right? I want people to call me a super connector. Like Tavo is a super connector, the person we referred to that put us together. That's what he does. But the super connector asks different questions to find real opportunities. So a networker is going to be like, well, Peter, what are you doing right now? What do you do? Like, what's your job? What's your asset base? More or less, that's what we ask in most conversations. I don't want to know that. I want to know instead, what's your wow project right now? Like, what are you working hard on right now that you're passionate about? And we're going to have a conversation about that. And I'm going to be quiet. And you're going to take me on a journey from like headline to body copy, to hopes and dreams and challenges and obstacles. And within that part of the story, oftentimes you will reveal to me an opportunity to introduce you to someone to bring a resource to the table. So most of my conversations, I'm like laying in wait like Columbo with one more stupid question to find that networking opportunity. And you have to stick with it because the last thing I'll say about networking is you also need to make it programmatic. So about 15 years ago, I made a commitment that by Friday at three, I will have introduced three people that should meet. And unlike Letterman, I don't have to have a lunch. I can use video like we're doing. I can use a conference call. I can even use a three-way email. And I've been working very hard on the technique around three-way email to make sure the right links are in the email. I text the benefactor, that's the person who's gonna help, before I ever send the email or call that person and say, answer that email, this is a good one. And then I follow up with the beneficiary the next day to say, did you seize the opportunity? I've really worked on that. I just, as a matter of fact, I made a connection today before I went to lunch, but I'm still short one for the week. But hey, it's only Tuesday. So that's networking for me. Put three people together every week that should meet, get out of the way. I promise you, your network will double year over year. Double year over year. Um you talk a lot about get, you know sort of getting connected and staying connected and a process for that. I, I was one question that I had, which is a very practical question, is how do you continue to stay connected to your network and follow up when you're not necessarily matching everybody together? I mean, you're doing it very actively, so that you know allows you to stay connected. But how do you stay connected and not be annoying? How do you you know not lose the connection to relationships you've developed? even if you're not tapping into them or helping them in a particular year? Well, first of all, you got to put yourself out there, right? So I try to program myself to attend enough events where the majority of my network is present every year to at least see, let's say, 15% of them face-to-face at some point. So you got to put yourself out there. Second thing is I stalk people. I talked about how I stole some time away from social. I actually set aside certain time for LinkedIn, Facebook. I troll people, but in a positive way. So I'll go through my feeds and just kind of randomly see who in my network is talking about what, if I can be encouraging, if I can contact them. And frequently that leads to in-mail messages, which leads to conversations like this. So I find that social networks, especially LinkedIn, to some extent Facebook, provide you a good opportunity to kind of look in on the people that you already know. But here's a little trick um, that I think is really important. And I just have been doing this for a few years since I read my buddy Adam Grant's book, Give and Take, which obviously is kindred, you know, spirit to love is the killer app. And he talked about this idea that every week, at least once a month, but if you can every week, reach out and talk to somebody that you haven't talked to in at least a year, preferably two or three years. Right. 
They'll so, be grateful that you've reached out. You're not being annoying. And if you listen and you ask the questions I just talked about, you know, what are your wow projects? What's your passions? Um, they're really going to appreciate the conversation. What Grant says, and this is true, is not only does it keep those loose ties in the network, it broadens your horizons greatly because they've been off doing things for a year or two years and three years, and they've learned things you don't know. And as they express to you what they're working on, it actually makes you better in the future at sharing knowledge with the next person. So I love that idea of finding a dormant connection in your network, reaching out and having the highest quality conversation, which is either face-to-face -face or video as the new belief I have now. Um, you mentioned Adam Grant, and, and I, if I'm remembering his book correctly, I think he came out from a research perspective and saying that, you know, takers don't win in the end, but neither do the pure givers, which is, you know, it's sort of the givers and takers. It's the ones who have kind of a balance between the two because the givers often get walked on. And I'm curious, I, I don't know how well you know Adam and how, how much you know about the book, but I'm curious if you have a thought around that. Well, I'm not a pure giver. I'm a conditional giver, right? So Adam hadn't read Love is the Killer app. He hadn't met people like me. He found out about me because somebody came up to one of his lectures and said, man, you sound like Love is the Killer app. Um, so, so when I got to know him a little bit, he was intrigued by the idea that I only help heroes and that when someone that I wrongly thought was a hero turns out to be a taker, I never help them again. And he thought that was a nice hack so that a person could be a conditional giver but never a taker and not, not get taken advantage of. And so... When he studied the idea that, you know, the person who's a giver as well as a taker, um, I think what he was studying was financial. Um, and that's never been the issue with me. Um, I really want to be satisfied with my career when I look back on it at the end of my life. And that's what I consider success. I don't consider success accumulation. Um, so I think that his definition of winning and my definition of winning are slightly different. But I think where we come together is around the idea that Nice, smart people succeed. Nice people get crushed by takers. So I totally agree with him on that. And I don't think it's a good idea to be a pure giver to anyone that wants you. I think you must be intelligent about how you approach this. Because if you give too much away and don't leave time for yourself, you're going to lose the very resource base you had to share to begin with. So I'm always thinking about how I build my business and protect that time. But I will say, Peter, there have been people who I've helped who've come back and said, I want to give this. I had a guy a couple of years ago. He said, I want to do this for you. I'm like, nope, nope, nope. I don't help to get anything in return. I'm the love cat. And he looks at me and he goes, look, I'm in a tough place right now. And I just want to feel like I helped somebody and I can give this to you. And I know for a fact you need it. I learned to accept so I've done a better job in the last few years of empowering the people I help to give back because then it's not about me owning them or them feeling in debt to me. Sometimes people want to give back and you must be receptive. It's just if you go into it not expecting anything, you have that opportunity to stand out. So that being said, I'm willing to take if they want to give. You know, it's interesting because there's a certain vulnerability in giving, which you've described. And there's also a certain vulnerability in receiving. I mean, receiving mm -hmm. might be a different way than taking, right? Which is what you've just described is not even taking so much as receiving. Right. And, and there's, there's a vulnerability in receiving. It's difficult to receive uh, in some ways, uh, you know, especially but, but if you're vulnerability, really... that it's, vulnerability, it's really important though, Peter. It's like love is like oxygen. You know, it's like if you stop being vulnerable, then you're going to suffocate on your own loneliness, Right. 
So, so I love vulnerability and I've just made my life now about all the hacks and safeguards for let me be that tenderhearted guy and not get crushed by the real world. Uh, give us a sentence on compassion. Compassion is your desire and commitment that others do not suffer unnecessarily. I really take it from Dalai Lama's Art of Happiness. I mean, I'm a Southern Baptist by trade, but I could not shake that definition the Dalai Lama had of what compassion means. Because, I mean, think about it. In every part of how we care about people from mentoring someone in need to user experience design, the end of suffering is the goal. So when I show someone compassion, I participate in somehow alleviating their negative emotions or embracing their positive emotions. And that's what it means to be a compassionate person. So I want to finish with, you know, the question that you gave me, Tim, what are your wild projects and passions? Let's see if there's, you know, a place where, where we can connect on that level. And, and, you know, if there's any way that I could help, I would be happy to. So, um, you know, good question. So um, uh, I, I bought a lot of musical equipment over the last few years on my WOW projects uh, to, to make a couple of fun songs and to have a little bit of fun with that. So that's a that's a side project. But my WOW project for my life right now is working on my book, um, which will be my sixth book. It'll be the follow-up to Love is the Killer app. Earlier in the interview, I actually said the title of the new book accidentally. I'm not supposed to do that. But it is a book on how to be faster at falling in love with people you meet in your professional life and how to be more resilient when they disappoint you later. Because if you burn out on caring about other people, you cannot lead people and you cannot be a good provider of any type of service. So as the guy who wrote this thing back in the 90s, here I am in my 50s, I've been thinking a lot now, Peter, about how we stay the kind of person who's willing to really fall for someone and then be okay if he or she doesn't say thank you later. It's sort of an emotional resilience to disappoint. It's exactly you. what it is. I, I was going to call it love intelligence, but the whole LQ thing just smelled bad. So uh, I'll stick with whatever title I accidentally said earlier, which you'll tease out on playback, um, which I think is a much better title, unless the band sues me. <laughs> I, I, I now know what to play back to, to, to hear it. Uh, Tim Sanders, Love is the Killer App, How to Win Business and Influence Friends. This is one of uh, five books, I guess. The sixth is the one that you're about to come out with. Mm -hmm. uh, he also wrote uh, likeability factor, sort of your L factor. He's, you know, as you can tell, a passionate guy full of life. Tim, it's, it's, a, it's a pleasure both to know you and to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. My pleasure, my pleasure. I've actually parked um, an excerpt for everybody of Love is the Killer app at timsanders.com front slash Bregman. <laughs> That's awesome. We'll put that on the, uh, we'll put that in the show notes uh, as well. So thank Great. you. It's such a pleasure, Jim, as always. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Bregman Leadership Podcast. If you did, it would really help us if you subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. A common problem that I see in companies is a lot of busyness, a lot of hard work that fails to move the organization as a whole forward. That's the problem that we solve with our Big Arrow process. For more information about that or to access all of my articles, videos, and podcasts, visit peterbregman.com. Thank you, Claire Marshall, for producing this episode, and thank you for listening.